Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. I firmly believe that the divine works through people to help us every day. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed. Hello, my name is Angel and I'll be your host as we explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith. Welcome to the show, everyone. How are you? I hope everyone is doing well and that you're blessed. Uh, We have a bit of a different show this week. Uh, Those of you who have been listening for a while know we had an episode where we actually interviewed someone, (laughs) which is better than listening to me for an hour or so as they've been going here lately. Uh, But I have a dear friend of mine, Mike, that's here with us today, and Mike's going to share with us his story. Uh, As you can tell by the description of the show, uh, that it's uh, based on the 12 steps, but I don't want you to think it's just about the 12 steps. Uh, The 12 steps are a huge part of Mike's life and uh, a huge part of why Mike is still with us and able to share his story. Uh, I met Mike a little bit over a year ago uh, on the My Heart Disease team. Uh, It's an online support group for those who have heart issues. And I've spoken about it uh, briefly here and there in the past, as well as mentioned another podcast that I had uh, on my heart disease and and all that in the heart disease team. Uh, But um, those of you who are interested in getting help and support, uh, the online group, I can't uh, recommend enough. It's called My Heart Disease Team. And you can find them at myheartdiseaseteam.com. And I'll have a link to everything we talk about, as always, in the show notes. Um, We're not going to be using last names, and some names are going to be changed. I know it kind of sounds like a detective story. uh, (laughs) But because of the topics and the things that we're going to be discussing, it's important because, uh, you know, Mike's uh, been gracious enough to come on here and share his life uh, as raw as he can with us. And it's really important that we don't upset anybody or harm anybody. And that's not, of course, never our intent and purpose. We're here to help each other. And we hope and pray that uh, Mike's story helps you. So without further delay, I'm going to turn the show over to Mike and let him share his story with you. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi. Uh, Thank you, Angel. I'm so glad I met you. You've been a blessing in my life. which later on, um, as we listen, we'll find out how that came to be. Uh, uh, My name is Mike S. and I am an alcoholic and um, I've been in recovery for 22 years now. Um, I never thought I would be able to say that because as you'll see throughout the story, uh, I just couldn't get it at first. But to begin with, I'm just going to start off with basically how my life was before alcohol. And no one just wakes up one day and says, I think I'm going to be an alcoholic and ruin my life. There's something that precedes that, whether it be a mental illness, uh, depression, something uh, kicks it off. So we'll get into that. As I go, you'll see what kicked mine off and really put the switch on. Um, I was born and raised Catholic in Chicago. Um, We had a great family. Um, 
did normal things like any other kid throughout my young childhood. Father would take me fishing. Uh, at this time in Chicago, where we lived, uh, we moved out of this inner city of Chicago out to the suburbs in the early 60s where they were just building new uh, subdivisions. So it sounds like far from Chicago, but like I'm, it's like five miles from the, the border. So anyway, at that time, um, it was all farmland. Um, Farms all around, horse stables, uh, dirt roads, believe it or not. Yeah, I'm that old. It's amazing. I sometimes have to fill out these forms online and they have this scroll where you scroll down to your birth date and year. And it's like, oh, come on, where's, nine, where's 1961? Well, you got to be kidding. It's, I can't find it. <laughs> so you Yeah, I'm 69, so I'm not far behind you. <laughs> So uh, everything was just a normal childhood, you know, all the mischievous, we were mischievous kids uh, running our mini bikes up and down the street. We'd walk up and down the streets with our pellet and BB rifles. You can't do that today, um, of course, but those were different days. Um, uh, really, you know, model airplanes, rockets, uh, Boy Scouts, you know, we, we did it all. Yeah. Um, bike riding through the forest preserves, uh, just regular kid stuff, tree forts. Um, I mean, we had farms to pick from because one by one, they were tearing down the farms to build apartment buildings. And that's when the growth really started happening um, back then. So slowly those things were taken away, but we were getting older anyway. So uh I want to say there was a time when my mother had the picture of Jesus hanging in our bedroom. And I had this fear of that picture. I made her take it down. I was scared of God. Now you can have any, you know, choose your God of your choosing. But like I said, I was raised Catholic. So we know what that's all about, or most of us do. Um, and, and I always believed in God. I, you know, I always did. Um, my mother used to take us to the doctor and she put a Bible in our hands and I'd be reading about the creation um, of the world and see pictures of Adam and Eve. And, you know, so I always believed in God, even as a youngster, because I guess by going to church with them, they kind of instill that into you. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. You just, you were just raised like that. Um, so, you know, and it was, um, you know, as a, a young teenager of maybe 12, 13, I'd be hanging around with the, the bigger guys in the neighborhood. And they were into like, you know, marijuana and drinking, you know, wine and beer, Schlitz malt liquor. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I did experiment back then with these guys and it really didn't appeal to me at that, at that point. Um, I never really abused it or anything. Couple sips here and there, I was just a kid. Started yeah. smoking at that age, you know, learning how to smoke and puking afterwards. So, mm -hmm. but I continued to smoke cigarettes, but not until 
where I'm getting to. Um, that was all experimental. And then it was around, um, like I said, we had, you know, I don't wanna say it like this, but it was sort of a Brady Bunch type family situation. Everything was going smoothly. Everyone yeah. working, front, you know, we had Sunday dinners together as a family. We had a three flat. My grandmother and grandfather lived upstairs. We lived on the second floor and then we had a basement. So we always had dinner together on Sunday, just your normal traditional Italian stuff um, every Sunday. Uh, so family life was good. And then it was 1977 in July. Uh, I was about 14 years old. Uh, my father didn't tell anyone he wasn't feeling good because he was up for a big promotion at work. Uh, he worked at a, he was a grocery store manager in a grocery store. And uh, my uncle was a vice president of that company. And, uh, you know, even early on in my life, my father took me to work with him when I was like 10. I, I was always a worker. Anyway, besides the point, um, uh, he, uh, he went to the doctor and he, they said he had to go to the hospital. They thought he might've had hepatitis C or something. Um, turned out to be a rare blood condition. And well, within three days, he was dead. Um, oh my gosh. I remember, I remember, um, that that night um I, I before he went in the hospital he says you just take care of your mother and watch her and i didn't really understand what was going on because they really didn't say nothing to us um i i don't know why i know now why my mother told me later on that you would not have wanted to see him in the shape he was um anyway this rare blood disease literally uh, made his platelets not clot. It was called ITP, idiopathic thrombosis purpura. Uh, and that's where your blood doesn't clot. So he literally bled to death inside. Uh, they oh couldn't gosh. stop the bleeding. It was around 11 o'clock that night. We were whole family gathered at my house and I knew something bad was up, but I, I couldn't figure it out. I was just like 13, 14, you know? Um, and I, but I do remember praying to God, you know, let everything be okay. But then the phone call came and my aunt answered it and says he didn't make it. And, I, and from that moment on, after hearing that, I now know looking back, I immediately had post-traumatic stress from that. And I also was in a state of shock throughout the whole funeral. I, oh, no doubt. I mean, they, they took me to go buy a new suit and this and that. I wanted nothing to do with it. They actually that night, everything was so upsetting in my household. They took me out of the house and put me in my neighbor's house next door. And I slept there. But of course, I was wide awake the whole night. I don't know. I guess they were trying to shield me from it was it was chaotic, just you can just imagine something oh, yeah. unexpected to somebody who's 38 years old with a whole family and a whole career ahead of them. Um, 
That's young. Gone, gone like that. And, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend throughout high school and even before high school. And I knew this. She was my girlfriend throughout high school. She lived across the street. She was the girl next door. And um, after that happened, um, you know, I hung on to her quite a bit uh, for support. But throughout that whole process after his death, I entered high school that year and I was a freshman. And to begin with, I'm not only shy by nature, but I also found out I have a panic anxiety disorder that started at that point. Uh, but I found through going to parties at high school, um, you know, I was drinking beer and partying with everybody else and, you know, started smoking and uh, well, I found that to be a cure-all. I no longer, it kind of, I don't want to say helped me dealt with my father's death, but it sure was the switch that turned on the alcoholism because I used it for everything. It was my escape for everything in life. And it worked. It worked for a long time. Um, but that was the starting point. That's what really kicked it off. That was a major loss to me. Um, and well, as you can imagine, uh, and many people listening probably have the same story like that, where a parent has died when they were a child or teenager. And, uh, I guess they would be able to relate to the, the devastation it does to the family. Um, so, um, yeah, no doubt. I guess. I guess that's the point I'm trying to get across. But I, I discovered in high school that, you know, I was always playing guitar. Everyone and all, everyone in my neighborhood played guitar. So I was involved in all of that in high school. We had garage bands and real bands and uh, we we're actually good. Uh, so as time went by, you know, senior year came and my grandfather had given me a 70 Plymouth Fury. Um, and I, I went to work, I think it was junior year. I always had a good work ethic for some reason. I guess it was instilled to me by what I saw my uncle and father do. Um, and grandfather, he was a carpenter. Um, actually the desk I'm sitting at, he made and that was over 70 years ago and it's still here. Um, so. Yeah, all, all good people. Um, and I want to get through the high school years. The high school years were just your basic, it's just for me and other people was just partying. For others, it was, you know, sports. For me, it was, you know, being in bands and partying. And uh, sometimes there were many days I would cut out of school and not me, but just a lot of other people like me. Uh, we were called the stoners. <laughs> We'd head, to the forest, we'd head to the forest preserve at lunchtime. And because I had a car, everyone would pile in my car and uh, we'd go out there and drink the rest of the afternoon and never go back to school. Honestly, my grandmother even asked my mother, she says, how did he even graduate high school? Um, and I don't even know, but I did. But the thing is I had no direction after high school. Um, 
I, I wanted to be going the army with my friend. I went all the way up into the swearing in part and I turned around and left. And uh, my mother said, let them go, let them go to the army. It'll straighten them out. They knew back then that I had a problem that I didn't even know I had. Uh, yeah. They saw it, uh, but they felt oh, like maybe helpless, you know, and that it would pass. Maybe that's a phase in his life. My mom said, let him go. Let him go to the army boot camp. will straighten him out uh, and he'll be fine. And my grandmother talked me out of it because at that time we had the Iran thing going on. We were ready to go in and blow up the Ayatollah and, uh, we had Granada going on and they invaded that island. So she, she didn't scare me out of it. I, I honestly felt it wasn't for me to begin with um, because um, I really wanted to be a doctor. Um, oh. You know, um, and that's what kills me the most to this day. Nobody like they do today in high schools. Um, and if there's any youngsters listening out there that are in their teens and on high school, um, have a direction, have a plan, have a goal, uh, something you want to do and enjoy in life to work at. Um, because I missed my opportunity because I didn't have counselors back then that sat me aside and said, hey, what do you want to do after high school? You know, what do you want to be? What, you know, do you want a career? Do you want to go to college? Uh, nobody ever told me I had that opportunity. You're, you're, you're talking, this is the 70s now. And usually back then you had to be in a family that was from doctors who can afford to send right. you to school or sponsor you, back you up, you know, in the system. Because, you know, that's the way it was. Um, sometimes you needed a, a, a little help getting in certain places that only you had to know certain people to do. Yeah. Um, so no one told me I could do all these things. So I thought the army would be the best and Coast Guard to study weather. Um, they all, and I, when I backed out of that, my mom was wrong because my buddy, when he got back home from spending four years in Savannah, Georgia, we were supposed to go together uh, to become aircraft mechanics. And I asked him, you know, what'd you learn? How would you get out of it? He says, to be honest with you, we sat in a hair airplane hangar all day long drinking beer. And he would send me letters. At that time, there was no internet, no phones, no answering machines. So I'd get a letter from him in the mail. He says, why don't you come down to Savannah for the weekend? We're always here on the beach partying. It's wow. like, so now I know if I would have went, I would have yeah. been kicked out of the army <laughs> because, because the switch had already been turned on alcoholically. Um, right. There, my tolerance was starting to build from there. Uh, my grandmother instead offered to send me to heating and air conditioning school, refrigeration school. And I had worked with a, uh, another uncle doing that throughout high school. On the weekends, I would make extra money by helping them pull steam and oil, uh, oil and coal burners out of the Chicago houses because at that time, people still had oil and coal. God, I sound old, don't I? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're we're changing them into natural gas furnaces. So he'd give me the grunt work of taking these big steam cast iron steam radiators out of houses and all the piping and wow. 
But he paid me good. And he says, if you always want to have money, get into this trade. So I took my grandmother's advice. She sent me to school and I was good at it. I, I was very good at it. Uh, I was the first one in my class to actually fix a refrigerator that nobody could figure out. And basically I took the door off and I retraced the wire back to where it burnt out and that's all it was. Anyway, long story short, I was smart, right? Yeah, anyway, <laughs> what, what really happened is that um, for some reason I got just messed up with people coming back from Vietnam at that time and just going back to school through the GI Bill. I, my class was just loaded with Vietnam veterans and, you know, God bless them because every one of them that I knew, they just, something just wasn't right about them. I don't know what they experienced there or what they saw. And this will also go on further into another career I had after this, and we'll get into that. Um, I went to school working part-time at a grocery store uh, to, you know, and uh, graduated. But in that time, these Vietnam guys at 10 o'clock morning break, they'd be like, come on, Mike. And I said, where are we going? Well, we're taking our half hour break now. We were down at the end of the street of the school where there was a neighborhood pub open at 10 in the morning. And we would sit there drinking beer. And believe it or not, I actually graduated from that school. I don't know how, but see how the drinking kept going it's it's, it's oh, increased yeah. the drinking's increasing now the tolerance is getting more uh when i don't drink in the morning i'm not feeling well until i take that first drink you can see how it builds up now the tolerance uh everything is building up um as far as you know the times i'm drinking the amounts i have to drink uh beer shortly turned into harder liquor because it just couldn't get enough beer in me to get the effect I needed. Um, so I got through that school. Me and a guy from school actually started our own heating and air business. We did get a few jobs. Um, and then really nothing after that. Um, you see, at that time, no one would take me on as an apprentice because, like I said, you had to be in a system where literally it was pay, union pays, you know, payoffs. You had yeah. to buy your buy your way into like the pipe fitters union or the sheet metal union. So I had a really hard time getting someone to take me on as an apprentice or, you know, let me be in their company as an apprentice. And my uncle saw this. He was the vice president of the company my father worked for and I worked for and my whole family worked for. He became vice president. And um, he called me and he, you know, he he says, you want to you know, the, the, the meat cutters union has an opening. Uh, and, he, you know, this is very rare. Okay, this is jobs that people die for at that time. Yeah, uh, to become a meat cutter in this company, this company was very strong, had great benefits that you can't get anywhere, you needed to know someone to get in. Um, and my uncle says, Look, the union's got an opening for an apprentice meat cutter. He says, if you know, if you're not, if you don't think you're going to make it with this, he says, this is a good career. 
it's got good benefits and everything. And, it, you know, whatever the case, he explained the whole thing. I said, after thinking about it, I was, you know, tired of going up on roofs in the middle of winter, fixing a, a thermal couple to get a heating unit going. So uh, I says, you know what, I, I, I'll try it. He says, okay. So I went for my physical, everything's fine. Well, you know, I'm still drinking at this whole point. I mean, uh, actually afraid I wasn't going to pass the physical because of my drinking. Because um, it was at the point where even the day before whatever I drank was just oozing out of my body. You can smell it. It's very foul yeah. smelling. It's a foul smell uh, when you're sweating it out. So anyway, um, so I get to my... Uh, well, I tried to get to the job on the first day. They had everything planned out and I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I did something in the past with my driver's license and I got pulled over and I'm supposed to be at work at nine and it's here, it's, it's 10 o'clock and I'm in jail. I've been arrested on the oh first my day gosh. of my first day of a career job. <laughs> and I called my mom and I says, you gotta do something. I said, I, I don't even know how I got out of that one. They straightened it out. I didn't do something right. And my license was literally suspended and I honestly didn't know it. Um, wow. So if it wasn't probably from my uncle, I wanna say he never told me anything about it, but I arrived two hours later and let me tell you, if I didn't go to boot camp earlier, I just now entered boot camp when I walked in the door because everyone I worked with were returned Vietnam soldiers. Oh my God, you talk about people shouting in your face. Oh, and that's wow. the way it was back then. I, I do believe now that my uncle did that on purpose. He says, I want you to toughen them up. Uh, and they did. To become a meat cutter at that time, you had to be tough. Back rooms were like 10 guys cutting, processing meat, uh, working with all this dangerous machinery. Um, and then you got a bunch of people from Vietnam you're working with. And mind you, this is like, you know, only 1980. These guys are fresh in 75, 76, you know, right. just returning. Uh, after the fall of Saigon, some of them, and uh, uh, even the store manager, he was just freshly back from Vietnam, 1975, when I worked part-time. So these guys were rough. They weren't going to baby me because my uncle was the vice president or anything. They knew who I was. And uh, I think they actually, because my uncle was a vice president, they thought maybe I would be like an inner snitch for him. You know how that goes. Yeah. Um, so they actually resented me at first, but yeah, it was like being in boot camp for the first month. Every day, people shouting at me in front of my face, and but I understand now why. It's a business where you had to be strong. Meat was hanging on a hook. You had to lift 200, 250 pound four quarters up onto a saw by yourself. I mind you, I'm only 18 at the time, 1920, I think 20 maybe at the most. And um, very tough job, but physically I, it made me very strong. I was like a bull, I mean. No um, doubt. 
But I still, you know, went home and drank and uh, did my thing after work. And after working there, he almost wanted to drink. By the way, in that industry alone, it's known to, for many alcoholics. We've had people hide uh, bottles in bone cans for fat trimmings to go in. You'd find bottles in there. Um, one store manager told me at the time that uh, a guy left a bottle a pint bottle of uh, whiskey in the grinder to keep it chilled. Uh, he was keeping it cold for lunchtime. And when someone went in there to ground, grind meat and uh, didn't know it was in there, and it went through, and he says, yeah, we, he got fired for that and all this and that. So many stories. And in the meat cutting industry and that, it, for some reason, there's a high alcoholism drug abuse rate. I don't know why. It's just a very tough industry altogether. Yeah. Uh, the whole grocery business is uh, you're dealing with the public and taking a lot of abuse that you can't do nothing about. Um, so it's one of those things. So as time went on, I met my first wife. Uh, we just call her Patty. And uh, we dated and my girlfriend previously from high school had moved away. Her family took her back to Italy after high school. And that was kind of devastating. She was like my best friend. So yeah, no uh, we we known each other since we were 13, 14. And we started going out as a couple in high school. And then even after high school a year or so. And then her family decided to take her back to Italy. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. We, our plan was to get married, but I felt helpless to, in the way of the, the law. I didn't know what the law was. You know, how am I going to keep her here? And, right. you know, that's a story for later on. I still talk to her to this day. Um, oh, that's great. So um, these, are, you know, these are all the things that happen when you become sober and stay sober. They're called the promises in the big book. Um, we'll get to that. So anyway, we got, um, she got pregnant, this girl I met, and uh, um, we got married, and of course, I'm drinking, I bought a condo, and uh, most of my time was spent in the garage drinking, um, I was, I was, you know, I, I have to mention, back then, everything I did was I either did it full on or I didn't do it at all. Here's an example. Like I'd be into scuba diving. Um, not only did I have the basics, I had the raft. I had everything like Jacques Cousteau. Um, wow. Uh, I used to be into all kinds of hunting and, you know, I, I nothing for me was done little. I looked like a guy out of field and stream when I was done hunting. Anyway, <laughs> so I just wanted to get that across that I always went to extremes feeling that my father died so young. I always had this fear that I would die young too. So I need to live it up. Yeah. And, and that was the theme of my life for a long time. Just, just living it up while others went away to college and did their thing and got married. Mike was still living it up and partying while everyone was growing. I wasn't, um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we got married. Um, it, it, you know, it never was the greatest relationship to begin with. Um, 
we both know that and we're on good terms today. Um, but our first son, when he was born, Aaron, um, about a year, a little into a year or so, we noticed something wrong and um, we found out that he was mentally handicapped severely. And then after that, he came down with this virus that um, was called hemolytic uremic syndrome. And it knocked his kidneys out for about a year. So he was on this peritoneal dialysis for a year. Um, so he's been sick since almost birth. Um, wow. he's, he's still with us today. Um, but um, that, that, those were nightmarish days alone, the medical things that we up, the ups and downs medical wise. Um, you know, there's, you can re, I'm not going to get into every time I was arrested for domestic battery or abuse or, but you can imagine with an alcoholic in, like me or anybody, the abuse or verbal abuse that goes on, it was just bad, but we had yeah, to deal with, with this sick child and, uh, you know, you can fill in the rest, what, you know, you know, what happens in a household with an alcoholic. So I, oh, yeah. my, my dad was, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You, you can fill in the blanks. Otherwise I could yeah. be here for three hours on each incident. So, um, it was bad. You know, I was getting into trouble with the law. We had a sick kid and, um, his kidney function came back a little bit. We had some hope there and then they discovered it wasn't going to come back. It did too much damage the virus. So he's mentally, very, very mentally handicapped, uh, challenged uh, mentally. Um, they don't even have a name for the syndrome, really. Um, wow. But he's the most loving kid, you know, you can ever know. He knows no wrong or evil because he, we've always sheltered him from that, the world. Yeah. Um, but as time went on, things got worse and worse. We had another son, Adam. Um, and, uh, I want to say the darkest day of my life after all of this was through, um, would probably be the last time she called the police on me because that was her way of getting me out of the house and everything else that goes along with it. She finally, you know, we decided to separate and divorce and uh, uh, I, was, I had lost my job just prior to this and was had my truck repossessed and I walked down the street from work where I got fired and I bought a mail jeep out of the post office for $200 so I took this jeep and I went over there and I packed up all what clothes I had left. That's basically all I had left. Uh, and uh, watching my other son, Adam, look out the window, holding his little blanket. As you can imagine how I felt. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I felt like I was abandoning them then, but they were too young to really understand why I was going. But that probably was the darkest day of my life and still haunts me. 
what I will say today, my 30 year old son, Adam, uh, he comes over, we talk, he understands now. Um, and uh, That's great. so that all comes in the 12 steps we'll get to later. Um, that's the making amends part, um, which that alone is miracles that have happened to me. Uh, so that all happened. You know, I found jobs, this and that, because meat cutters were wanted everywhere, even if I got paid less. Um, I, I went back to live with my mom. The drinking increased, everything increased, pills increased. I was writing my own prescriptions for Valium. Um, at that time, it was real easy. Just you know, I, I literally learned to write in Latin, believe it or not. Um, and, and it worked. Um, but at the age of 30, you know, the Valium and the drinking. I'm sorry, this took place while I was still married. This was the ending of it. Um, this is what made it come to an end. Uh, I was drinking and taking pills and my my wife at the time called the doctor and said, did you prescribe them all these Valium? And she says, no, where do you get Valium from? And she researched it called the pharmacy here. I'm facing a 10 year prison sentence. Uh, you know, it's my mother's doctor I did it to. Um, so, uh, but she knew my condition through my mother. My mother always asked her, what am I gonna do with her? Uh, do with him and you know anyway um uh, that was the day I packed everything up and went back to my ma's place she let me stay there the drinking didn't stop it increased more uh, my mother which I didn't know at the time was going to families anonymous because I'm wondering okay. where's all this tough love coming from all of a sudden you know, and it's like she was doing the program before me. So I didn't know this. And she literally packed my stuff up and threw me out down in the middle of middle of Chicago in a place called the Haymarket House run by a priest she knows. I didn't make it there. I went back home. I didn't even last one day because it was a non-medical detox, which I would like to let everyone know if you're gonna just stop drinking on your own, if you are drinking, do not do it without medical attention because you can die in the withdrawal. Um, you can literally stroke out or have a heart attack because your blood pressure skyrockets as your body is detoxing from the alcohol. Um, and I, I learned that in, I don't know how many treatment centers I've been in and out of. I've been to everyone there I can think of in the Chicago area because I never wanted anyone to know what I was doing. And I would do it on vacation time, always never getting it, just never getting it, coming out lasting seven days and that craving come back. So anyway, all this is going on. We have a sick kid. And uh, I leave the house, I go back by my mom. She tries to throw me out on the street. Then she took me down to the YMCA downtown in Chicago. I stayed there for a while. Uh, I didn't have a driver's license. I did get a DUI at that time. So I didn't have a way to get around. 
Um, I was, so I stayed at this YMCA and that just turned out to be, I found a job close by cutting meat and um, that didn't last too long because uh, the people up in the YMCA, they're all drinking. It was just crazy. It was just a crazy thing. Um, always found myself joining in with whoever I was with, even if it was a treatment center. Uh, some people would relapse. Not everybody makes it. You have to watch who you're with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so then she took me to a halfway house and I was there for six months. Um, she just left me off with just the remaining clothes I had at the halfway house. I had very little left at that time. Um, that didn't work. Um, about four, three months into it, or it could have been six months. I, I lasted about six months living there with complete strangers. You know, it felt like I was in prison, yet I was free to go about because it, it had a prison atmosphere just because of the, all the different racial types that were there. I oh, felt yeah. like, I, I mean, this, this halfway house, you got to remember, is in the middle of Chicago. So everyone that, you know, I'm not the only white guy in Chicago. There's other colors too. And you know what? God bless them. Some of them are really great. Um, I made a lot of great friends, um, but a lot of them didn't make it. Anyway, I flunked out of there because uh, my one roommate decided to uh, sidestep the meeting we were supposed to be going to uh, called the Rogers Park Alano Club. Uh, that was a big AA thing. Um, and uh, we, we, he sidetracked me and I followed with him. And the next thing I know, we're in a crack house smoking crack. And I've never even done that before. It's like, oh boy, you know, now what? Um, and uh, the eighties were a bad time too. I, I'm, I don't mean to jump back and forth, but I'm just remembering now cocaine was big in the eighties too. Um, but I, I didn't do anything like that for a long time. And then I met this guy and sooner or later they caught on to us and I was kicked out of there. Uh, from there, I went back by my grandmother and she couldn't take it anymore. So she sent me back to my mother's house. At this time I had lost a job. They sent me to treatment. Um, my store manager's name was Ron. Here's the bottom of it all. Here's how it all came to be. Here's how it ended for me. Uh, I was at the point where it was pills and vodka. Sometimes I can go through a gallon of vodka on my day off uh, from 6 a.m. to 10 at night. Um, the tolerance was so high. My liver was fatty. Um, uh, on the way to cirrhosis, I had pancreatitis in between that two months in the hospital, uh, that could have killed me. Um, so I forgot the, after I, before I left the house, I had my first full blown blockage in my left descending artery of my heart. They call that the widow maker. I didn't know what was going on. I was only 30 years old. It's like, you know, never thought that could happen, but you know, as soon as I walked in the ER uh, with uh, 
my ma because she was she lived next door to me in the condo next door that's how i became to buy that one uh it was for sale and it's whatever um besides the point um and they immediately took me to the back she they says you're giving you're having a heart attack just calm down and they they took care of that with the stent everything was fine and um uh, in this whole time in and out from the time i was like 24 to 30 by the time this happened i had been to many treatment centers um and that's actually where i was introduced to valium because they replaced the alcohol with valium and i discovered if that's all it takes for me to get sober you mean if i just have a couple of these pills i can get sober that's why i was writing prescriptions because i was getting desperate i was running out of treatment centers to go to and people to help me psychiatrists yeah. wouldn't help me anymore one treatment center i went to my my chart started to become so large it, it looked as thick as a telephone book i had literally one psychiatrist throw the book at me against from across the room he was so pissed off at me like why can't you get this he says you're gonna die and it just didn't phase me. Um, it was that bad doctors throwing charts at me. Um, that's how frustrated they were with me. If you can only imagine how frustrated my family was and people who loved me, uh, yeah. the, 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 the mental torture of when is this guy gonna either die or, or something gonna happen, he's gonna kill somebody. Thank God I didn't kill anybody in a, in the car accident i don't know how many cars i've switched up uh, too many to count or even go through but many car accidents uh, even the first one my grandfather gave me we smushed that up because of drinking that one night we went out and there was ice on the road um yeah from the very first car i smushed <laughs> anyway um after being separated with that and then after the heart attack then i went to all you know all these different halfway houses and that finally i got a real job and um it was a good job and i had my own apartment i was getting on my feet i was living by my grandmother in her little basement apartment for the time being but i was doing good but still drinking and then finally one day i had to be honest with my boss and his name was Ron, uh, the store manager. I says, look, I got a problem um, and I'd like to go to treatment. And, and they said, okay, that's fine. You're a great worker. We want you to get help. We're glad you let us know. But they made me sign a paper saying if I came back and drank again, that I would be terminated for, uh, for it. And I, mm -hmm. and I understood and I, and I agreed. I said, that's fair enough. You know, that yeah. you're giving me a chance to keep a very good job. Well, I went to treatment seven days later, um, came back to work. It was a little shorter than I'd say a week after that. So two weeks into being back, um, I started drinking on the sneak at home and all it took was just one drink. I thought I could get away with it. Um, and uh, 
that led into another one, another one. Before I knew it, I was drinking before work because my nerves were just, my hands would just shake. Um, and uh, I found a place near the airport here because I live close to like the biggest airport there is around uh, O'Hare Airport uh, in Chicago. Um, there was a 24 hour bar opened at the time and, and I knew about it. And I thought, okay, I, I just need to get through today and maybe I can figure out a way to go back to treatment somehow. So I, I went there and I had just a minute amount of vodka just to get me to work. On the way out, I bought a pint. I stopped at Burger King for breakfast by the something between the proteins in the food and even the littlest amount of alcohol I drank did something. I came in the store and literally staggering. And I honestly don't know why, because I drank so little of amount. As soon as my boss saw me, I says, I know, let's go. That's I said, we're going to the office. I know. I said, I'm sorry. Um, so Ron, the store manager, he hands me a Bible. I said, I know, Ron, I'm fired. I, I says, I know, I'll, I'll get treatment again. Um, he says, but I have to fire you. I says, I understand. And, it, you know, don't worry about it. I said, it's going to be okay. And to my surprise, he handed me a Bible and he wrote in there, I love you and God loves you. And he wrote the date in there. It was uh, June 27th or 25th, 2015. Uh, I forgot the year. But I got sober in 2001. Um, it was before that, a little, a little earlier. So, like I said, I had the Bible. I always believed in God. And after being fired, I was living with my mother. I went back home and I told her what happened. And um, this was it. I mean, <clears throat> there really was no place to go. I was at, at, at the end. Uh, I had gotten fired. Um, And I did have Valium on hand, I believe, uh, because that was my plan on getting myself sober. I always knew with Valium, you can get sober. But with me, I would drink and take the Valium. And before I know it, they're both gone. So it's a, it's, it's a catch-22. Yeah. Um, so this, this time, I was I am at my ma's house, nothing to do, nowhere to go course feeling sorry for myself or whatever you want to call it uh spiritually emotionally and everything bankrupt at that point literally even money um i started while she was at work i started i took you know valium in the morning then i would slam down a shot of vodka and go to sleep for about an hour i did this for eight hours straight till she came home on and off every hour, Valium a shot, Valium a shot. Um, and she found me on the bathroom floor and I didn't even know it um, that um, she got me to the ER somehow. They told her, they, they literally told her and God bless my mom, she's a saint. Uh, she's gotta be a saint for going through all this. Um, but she, uh, she was told that we don't know if he's going to make it through the night. We're going to, we'll call you in the morning when we know. 
and I did have no idea about any of this was going on. I, wow. I don't know if they gave me something to put me out or I put myself out. Uh, that morning or two mornings later, I believe, because I don't know when I went in. I know it was a Monday or Tuesday when I woke up. I woke up in a locked room. The, the windows had bars around them. Uh, I thought I was in jail at first, um, but I was in a psych ward. Um, and I don't know if they thought I was going to commit suicide or whatever the case, because I was completely locked in. Like a, every window was had bars on them. Couldn't open none of them. All I saw was the park out in the back of the hospital. I knew the hospital I was at once I got orientated. But something was funny this time. I didn't, uh, I didn't have a mental fog. I wasn't hung over. And I know they didn't give me anything because they took, my mother says they took all of my medicine from me. And with my condition already being almost dead, I don't think they gave me anything to further that process. So um, I, I sat up at the side of the bed and I just felt different for some reason. It's, it's hard to explain. I, I stood up, I looked out the windows, had my hands and fingers on the, the bars of the window looking, trying to reach up and look out a little further. And all I see is like this park and people and people holding hands and walking around. It was uh, June 27th, 19, or 2021, uh, or 2001. I'll never forget the date. Um, I'm looking out the window at people enjoying life and I'm thinking to myself, I'm in here a prisoner of my own making. I said, I did this to myself. I've wasted a whole life. And I'm thinking to myself, I said, I can't do this no more. I said, I said, and I, and then that's, this is the next thing that happened and it just came out of my mouth. I said, Lord God, I know you're real. I always believed in you. I said, I cannot take this anymore. I can't, I can't do it alone. I says, the days of me doing it are over. I cannot live like this drinking. I can't live without drinking. I said, please take it away from me. I said, you run my life, you be in control and whatever your future for me holds, I'll go with it. Okay, this is puts hairs on me right now because what happened next is unbelievable. Um, most people might not believe this. Some spiritual people may. Some people may have experienced it in their own life. But as soon as I said those words and surrendered everything from my heart, a warm breeze came through the window. Now, mind you, this is a locked window. There's no windows open. Literally, I felt a warm breeze go through me. And all of a sudden, I felt this peace that I never felt before and a hope that everything was going to be okay from here on out. Wow. Now, that was my spiritual experience. I believe that for me, in my walk of faith, I believe it was the Holy Spirit filling me up with his presence and removing the alcohol because 
from that day to this day today as I talk, I have not had a compulsion or craving to drink at wow. all, not once. I even go to the point where I have to ask, is there alcohol in there? I watch myself that much because I don't even want to test the spirits. Right. Uh, and yeah, from that day on, I immediately knocked on the door. I says, let me out of here. I don't know what they were thinking I was going to do. I says, I need to use the phone right now. I called my mother. I, I, I said, I'm okay for some reason. I says, I don't know how I got here, but you got me here. Thank you, whatever. And I says, look, I'm not leaving this hospital until you call Paul. At that time, this guy named Paul was one of my cousin's boyfriends. He wasn't in AA at the time, and he lived close by me. I said, please have Paul pick me up, and I don't want to go home. I want to go right to an AA meeting. Uh, now, mind you, all these years, I have been in and out of AA and had people try to help me. I just never got the message. Right. So I, I knew about AA. And it's like, all of a sudden, all these things started clicking. All the things I heard in the meetings, they're all starting to come together. You know, fake it till you make it, whatever it takes. Uh, every and, and it's like, I know what I need to do. And, and this is something I didn't want to do, but I did it. I said, have Paul pick me up. I want to go to an AA meeting from right from the hospital. I says, you're not going to believe this. I said, I don't believe I have to drink anymore. I said, it's left me. I don't have the craving. And, and I know my mother didn't believe this because I've said that many times to her. Um, so she, you know what I'm saying. Um, I yeah. said it to everyone. It's, oh, I'll be fine. You know, it's going to be fine. This time there was something different. I had this humility uh, come over me in a strange way, like a, like I had compassion, like, I don't know, like something just changed my heart from being hard to just following. Um, yeah. So I went to that meeting and anyone familiar with the big book or AA or how it started, um, they used to have meetings in houses in the beginning. They didn't have no big groups. They did turn into big groups, but he took me to this place which was a house built in the 1930s, which I thought was pretty cool and actually increased my spirituality as if I was living back in the days of early AA. It was a really neat house. Yeah, you'd have to, you know, just picture it. And many people just all over this house, you know, uh, holding meetings. It was open 24 hours. No excuse for no one to not make it to a meeting if you felt like drinking. Wow. He told me, I want you to do nine. He became my sponsor, what they call a sponsor. Someone who takes you under their wing and takes you through the program with you and guides you, spiritual guide. So he was my first real spiritual guide to mentor me a little bit and get me going. Um, he said, 90 days do. I says, I ain't got nowhere to go. I got no job, no money. I, I stayed 120 days at that place and attended, I don't know how many meetings a day, but each day I was there, my spirituality grew more and more. 
it's every day something kept telling me everything is going to be fine mike everything's going to be great this voice in my head said it's all going to work out don't worry i've got this and little by little little miracles started happening met another guy he gave me a job for some part-time money met some other people then you know just kept growing from there and um i did a lot of aa um for for many years you know i saw many people not make it um and from from when i look back now when I, when i see the people who didn't make it uh, to me it's it's more of a pride thing like they've got this under control and they've always got tomorrow to uh to take care of it and i can handle it for today i could stop anytime i want and in actuality they're they're suffering greatly and not saying anything to anybody uh those are the people that they just can't seem to get it and um you know i've got you know many people i know have passed from this disease um which it is um, a disease according to the american medical association it's mind body and spirit uh it affects all so um with that um there's some stuff i left out of the past um but that's okay you're getting the message i hope um with that i stayed sober and it was about a year and a half after that you see with a fatty liver i did a lot of damage to my body and um the biggest part was the fats my liver threw out into my 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 bloodstream over the years started causing clogged arteries everywhere not just that first one um so um i finally met a home group we call it we used to have meetings in houses too um it was a private group just like me and five other guys who really got personal and could be accountable for things we've, you know, we're doing in life, you know, just to be held accountable, you know. So uh, I met my my next sponsor, Sal, um, and uh, in this home group and a couple other people, and uh, we held meetings there every Friday night and had a pizza and just held AA meetings in in his house. Um, so he got me a job where he worked and it was in a woodworking, he made cabinets, custom cabinets. I knew nothing about this stuff. I basically picked up sawdust and whatever. Uh, and, and that's okay, it was a job. I mean, you know, I was, I needed a job. Uh, one day I used to pick him up and drive him to work because he was right by my house. So we get to work one day and I said, Sal, I don't want you to panic and don't let no one else panic, but I think I'm having a heart attack. Uh, I've been through this before. I know the sign. I says, just call it 911. I'm gonna just sit here real calm and keep as calm as I can be. So I, I walk in. I, I walk into the ambulance. I says, look, I'm having a heart attack. Don't panic. I'm telling the paramedics because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want them to freak out. It's like, look, right. here's what's going on. Get ready. Because here's what you need to do. I've been through this before. You know, yeah. start your IV, get the nitro going, and let's go. So we went there. Uh, they did the uh, angiogram. Uh, 
I had significant blockages in four, four or five arteries. Um, and he says, look, you're, you're only 40. Now, mind you, this is 30 and I'm 40 at the time. And I have major open heart surgery bypass. I didn't even have a chance to say anything. I says, what do you mean we're going to surgery? Before I knew it, he shot me with some morphine and I, I was gone. It's like, I didn't care. I said, okay, wow. let's go. Um, I said, whatever. But my faith I had at that time, I even said, Lord God, if it's my time, I'm ready to go, man. I said, if not, just heal me from this. Um, yeah. So next thing I know, um, they did a four-way bypass, took arteries out of my legs and my arms to get them. Um, and, and Angel, you know, well, they, no there. one's going <laughs> to understand the pain or what it's like after they crack your chest open. But yeah, if it wasn't for morphine, I don't know. They finally took the morphine away from me because you see, even for medical purposes, you have to watch if you have an addiction. Oh, yeah. They, they had to take away the little button from me because I was pushing it every five minutes because I just didn't want to feel that pain. But you know the pain I'm talking about. Yes, it's sir. something that it's undescribable. But yeah, um, not I, to I mention the experience. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I went home and I, 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 I went back by my mom, healed from that, and took me about six good months to really actually start feeling to the point of just being okay. Yeah. Um, the arteries they took out of my leg and arm hurt for years after, even worse than the uh, the other thing. But um, I made it through that and watched my diet. And well, I, I did still smoke, believe it or not. Smoking was is a very powerful addiction. Also, nicotine is very bad. Um, but um, yeah, so I made it through that, and then I continued on working. Yeah, so with that, we're, I'm actually into the 12 steps of AA uh, because actually step one, two, and three of AA, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have been unmanageable. Um, yes, I came to that point. Came to believe in a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Yes, I, I was alcoholically insane, literally. Uh, by all rights uh, at that point. Uh, I made the decision to turn my will over in life over to the care of God as I understood him. And I did that all in three steps on that one morning when I woke up from that, uh, from that fateful night that I might not have been here. So um, with that, um, I started working with my sponsors and um, my spiritual guidance and, you know, he told me to write down and made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, step four. And that was hard to admit a lot of the, the wrongs I've done many people and all the people I've harmed or hurt. Um, there were so many. Um, uh, but, but the, 
they, they did happen. Uh, five, admitted to God, ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. I did basically all those last few steps with my sponsor, and we went through my life. I told them, you know, and then we decided who would be on the list that I would have to make amends to. That comes in, you know, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character from our lives. Um, because I, I I was damaged. I, I did have defects, uh, whether mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, the defects were there. Um, and, you know, I must say, just because I became sober doesn't mean things in life still don't happen to you. Um, bad things still do happen, you know, just like my bypass surgery, which in actuality, they gave me like 20 more years of life to this day they're not blocked from what i understand um it's amazing so then i humbly asked god to remove our shortcoming so these were really done by myself spiritually by prayer and meditating and just listening to what my holy spirit who i call the holy spirit is trying to get through to me uh, who is God? And, uh, you know, funny thing, even after all of these steps, I just re reminded myself of, you know, I used to be a big hunter. Also came about with that was a change in my heart. I no longer can kill animals or hunt for some reason. Uh, I became more compassionate in some ways. Um, an example would be uh, that I, I was a CNA at one point. Um, well, I'll, I'll get into that. We'll get into that later. That, that all will mesh together. Made direct amends to such people whenever possible would hurt them or injure them or others. So you have to be careful when you're making amends. Basically, it's a forgiveness for you because you're asking someone for forgiveness because this is what fuels the alcoholic or addiction. It's the things we have done even make things worse. When we remember back, we have to straighten that past out with people. So it frees us up and I've done that and it works. I do it to this day, every day I do it. I have to write something I've wronged, uh, even if it's with my wife. Um, I have to correct it right away before it festers into something big that the next thing you know, you're bogged down with so many things. Some people do go and take that drink. Um, yeah. For me, I haven't had to go that far because it's based on a spiritual daily um, thing for me. It's it's how my spirituality is for the day. That keeps me sober. Um, it's a way sought, of life now. Yes, and that's in step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for God's will for us and the power to carry it out. And then step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, we went to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. That latter part is what keeps us sober also, uh, helping others, helping other people, uh, being humble. So a few stories on the amends. I've got a story I need to share because 
these are some of the little miracles that has happened to me through this program. Yes, I was divorced. I've had medical problems. Now we're going to get up to the present real quick. 10 years, 11 years ago, 2011, it would be around there. 2009 or 10, I went back to school after a hand injury. I put my hand in a meat machine and it ground it up. And I don't freak out. It's okay. My, my fingers are still here. They're just a little jumbled up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the surgeon said I would never work in this field again. Um, so I went back to school to become a patient care tech in the hospital uh, in nursing homes. Um, and here's where the compassion part gets in that I just have to mention because I find it amazing that I always wanted to be a doctor. So I, I, I did this thinking, hey, at least I got somewhere in the medical field. Right. And I always, I always liked it. Um, so I'm working in nursing homes and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I'm coming to find it's, it's not what I thought. And it's like, I go to work, I take care of these people and little old ladies picking them up and they weigh like 90 pounds and, you know, and then I find myself, instead of working, I find myself praying for them. And it's like, you know, like all of a sudden, this compassion in my heart has changed from being some hard guy to, and I wasn't really a rough guy, to be honest with you. I was more like Otis from Andy Griffith when I was drunk most of the time. Yeah. Um, the other stuff that was bad that happened was Mike the angry drunk. So. I guess I had a couple personalities there, but um, I, had to, I had more, I, after doing all of these steps and going through some of them, my heart has changed because of that. And um, there was a point um, where I had to uh, get a body ready for uh, the morgue and um, and uh, I called it quits on that at that point. Um, I, you know what I did? I went to the room and I've seen dead bodies before. And it's like, this will be no big deal. But there was nobody there with that old lady. No one, no family. I said, where's your family? So I, I closed her eyes and uh, no one even bothered to do that. So I closed her eyes. And I just stood there praying over her. And I, I called it quits on nursing home. So then I went into a hospital setting, ER work. Um, uh, there I saw the disastrous effects of alcohol and, and people in delirium tremens, and which is the DTs, which, you know, that's when you can die. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, you can go into seizures. It's very dangerous to come off of alcohol unless it's in a medical facility. Trust me, you do not want to try this on your own. Just admit you have a problem and get medical attention first because you can die just from the withdrawal. It's that serious. Um, so, um, you know, I the, the last straw was when I had to walk this this lady Betty around the floor to get her exercise and uh, 
she kept telling me my family's coming today. I says, oh, good, good. I'm glad to see you're going to get out of here for a little bit. So I asked, no one came. And this day after day, this happened. I'm walking this lady four days in a row. I said, where's her family? Someone finally came up to me and told me, Betty was dropped off here from another state and her family just abandoned her. Oh my goodness. I says, you got to be kidding me. From that point on until the time I quit, I just prayed for Betty. I even said prayers with her. I tried to go along with the story and my yeah. compassion for this is too much. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it no more. Yeah, it's too I've much. Seen, I, I, I've seen, I've been through so much myself. I, I didn't want to see any more death and destruction and, right. and sad stories. And I know we all are going to have them. Like I said, my one son, he's still with us, but he's still a very sick adult. He's 30 now. Uh, but he's still with us and there's a lot of challenges ahead for us, but, you know, I've seen enough and I, I said, that's it. And I wound up, um, meeting my wife that I have now. We met at that point. I was in the process of, uh, my house being foreclosed on. You see, even after sobriety, I still had stuff happen to me. Uh, I yeah. lost a house which happened because I was injured at work and was out of work two years. But that's not all that kicked it off to make it everything end. The final end came two years after I was already in this medical field. I was working at my last little place and went in to work. And uh, how would you say? Uh, I wasn't feeling good and I felt this pressure on my chest and they, I says, uh -oh. I think I'm having a heart attack again. And this is, oh, you know, geez. this is like years after, uh, right. 10 years after I was 50 now, I'm 50 years old now after in, in, in between this time, I'm doing all this other stuff and getting injured and being off of work two years. And my grandmother had just died. It was 2004. Um, Yes, I inherited some money, I'll be honest with you. Uh, so me, the rest of my family, brothers and sisters, they had houses and lives and were doing good. They didn't need the money. Me, for me, that was a fresh start in life. I, God gave me a fresh start. I yeah. mean, I bought a little house, made a little dollhouse out of it. You know, I had a girlfriend there and that didn't work out. Um, uh, but that's okay. Um, and then, so they're putting another stent in me. And I, I drove myself to the hospital. I took a, a nitro pill to keep my arteries open because it, it didn't seem that bad. Uh, but in actuality, this would turn out to be uh, the death of all death. Um, uh, got to the hospital because I wanted to be to the hospital where I live by. I was 20 miles away. I wanted to get, so I figured now this might sound stupid to most medical people, but I made it there. I shouldn't have done it without an ambulance, but I took a chance because I just wanted to be close to home because yeah, for some reason, for some reason, I just knew the doctors there and I didn't want to go anywhere where I didn't know my doctors. Uh, they knew my everything about my heart. So I made it there. They're trying to draw blood out of me. 
nothing will come out. They did the angiogram, put a stent in me, uh, two stents they put in me. I said, okay, I must not be doing something right with my eating or the smoking has to go. Yeah, believe it or not, I was still smoking, but not as much. I really was trying to quit. It's very hard habit. Um, anyone who's listening can attest to that. You could be dying. I know someone who had lung cancer and smoked to the, smoked to the end. Um, so that, that's how powerful it is. Um, so um, everything seemed to go okay after that. But they, I knew something was funny because I was already in the medical field. I didn't, what are you talking about? My blood is too thick. I said, what are you talking about? Just take it and put me, get a stent in and let's get out of here. Two days later, they let me go home. Friday came. My primary care doctor calls and says, um, I, 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 I got to talk to you. I says, he, see, he told me, I, uh, you left the hospital a day sooner than your blood, your last blood test came back. He says, uh, uh, I want you to go see a, this uh, hematologist, oncologist on Monday right away. I, I, I said, what are you talking about? I says, I know what that means. Uh, he says, I says, you're really concerning me and scaring me. I said, and he says, well, this is something I'm concerned about. And so is uh, the pathology department under looking further under the microscope. Uh, he wants you to be checked out further. So uh, I worried my head off all weekend and, uh, you know, thinking the worst. And I get to this uh, lady's office. It's a, it's a cancer center. And my aunt and my sister were with me because I was completely freaked out. Oh, no doubt. And uh, I knew I was already in the medical field. You ain't got no words you can put by me. I know what they all mean. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I learned the medical language in school. Um, so, um, you know, and she come right out and says, uh, um, I did confirm you do have acute myeloid leukemia. And immediately <laughs> I started crying and, you know, it's like, wow, I'm actually crying and that's, that's not good. That means something's really bad because <laughs> yeah. I usually oh, yeah. don't cry uh, unless I'm yeah. thinking about something that's sad, but, uh, because another story, medication will do that to you. Some of my blood pressure medication can depress me a little bit sometimes. I think you're aware of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, yes. it, it, it yeah. does a lot to me. So I can almost like look at a puppy dog and start crying for no reason. It's like, where'd that come from? It's yeah. just some, of the, <laughs> it's just some of the medications that are keeping me alive now. Yeah. But um, with that... Uh, I, I said, I don't have insurance. I just, you know, I got no job. I'm out of work right now with a hand injury. I'm just recovering from that. And, and, and you know, I, I'm only a CNA. I don't got no insurance. Um, so um, she says, let me make a phone call. So um, she, uh, she calls this doctor at Rush University in Chicago, highly, highly ranked hospital. I says, wow, Rush University? I ain't got money to go there. I yeah. says, that's got to be millions of dollars. She says, well, I can't do chemo here. You, I can't do it here because you have no insurance. He said, I can do it right here. But he goes, this guy's better. 
He's the head of the hematology department, cancer division, just for leukemia alone. Uh, highly, wow. highly recognized doctor in in this field. Um, name was Dr. Bina Parmigiana or something. He was from India. Um, God bless him. You know what? I heard her say one thing. She asked me one question. The doctor wants to know if you're a U.S. citizen. I says, yeah. <laughs> he says he wants you in his office three days from now and no later than three days. Wow. I get into his office. He says, what you have, we looked at it chromosomally because there's seven forms of it. The lowest being you'll need a bone marrow transplant. It looks like the chromosomes on yours is at the higher level, one, two, or three stage. He says, this can be highly treatable. I didn't want to believe him. And I says, where'd it come from? He, he says, no. I, I says, this is the last thing I thought I would get. You know, I exactly. just come out of nowhere. And, and mind you, two months before this, I must say my brother, older brother, he passed away from a heart attack and oh my gosh. pneumonia. So people at the funeral, they they saw the way I looked. Even my girlfriend, who now is my wife at the time, over the summer, she said, you're losing weight. I says, I know you got me working like an animal around here. Because <laughs> I was, I was yeah. just getting ready to move into her house because I was losing mine. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, it turns out um, people noticed that I looked sick and I didn't know it. And I didn't feel sick. I was eating like a horse all, every day which I found out later that was my body using up every store of energy I can get to fight the cancer. Wow. Um, so that's why I ate so much, but lost 60 pounds in one summer. Um, and then finally, my wife says, you look like you got cancer. I says, what are you trying to scare me now? She goes, no, look in the mirror. And I, I looked at myself and it's like, wow, something's wrong. And, Wives uh, know. <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, she absolutely was right. A month later, uh, in December 18th, I went and visited the doctor. He says, my plan is to put this in remission in seven days. Uh, they, did wow. a bone marrow, they did a bone marrow biopsy that day. And they took, put it all. I've got the microscope slide with what my leukemia looks like. They gave it back to me. I don't know why. Souvenir. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Here's another here's another death sentence we yeah. gave you, but you've made it through. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was my death sentence, and it surely well could have been. Uh, for some reason, I don't know how I did it, uh, but I made it through seven months of chemo, and in seven days they did a bone marrow biopsy, which is another torture in itself. Uh, it's like a corkscrew going into your thigh bone from a wine bottle. Literally, that's what it feels like. Even with wow. morphine, um, you can't get around it. Came back undetectable. There was no sign of detection of any type of new leukemia cells growing or um, blocking out the good ones. Um, nothing detected after the first week. Um, I immediately gained hope and faith that. I jumped out of the bed and just like, was like, you're kidding. Um, 
you got to be kidding me. He goes, no, it's not detectable right now. He says, here's what we're going to do. 30 days straight chemo. Um, and uh, this this is going to be, could be dangerous for your heart. And he says, you've got a heart condition, but he's, he's going to, he's, worked with this other cancer doctor, this Dr. Larson, I guess I can call her by name because she's great. Um, um, so I'm in there, I got my little Christmas tree with me because I know I'm gonna be in there through Christmas and I had that on the whole time. Stood about six inches tall and I had lights on it. I said, this is cool, you know, um, but the, the worst part was to come to the 30 days of Ida Rubison, they call it. This one chemo is highly toxic and chemically uh, dangerous. Um, and it was either going to work or not. Leukemia is a blood cancer. It's nothing they can cut out of you or irradiate. It's in your blood. So if it would have went to my spine, spinal cord, or my from there, it can go to the brain. So timing wow. was of the essence it was caught quick uh usually oil refinery workers get this they've got this type uh down to a science where benzene is a major chemical that causes this type of leukemia which is a byproduct of refining gasoline so oil workers have a lot of this come down with it uh and smokers because benzene is a byproduct of cigarette smoke one of the chemicals in cigarettes so I can't pinpoint where it came from, but God gave me another challenge. So I don't know, it was a good test of faith. Uh, the one doctor later on did, I was always wondering why I had like a team of cardiologists in my room every day for 30 days. I thought they were teaching each other. It was a professor and a student. It was a teaching hospital. And usually yeah. it was, usually it was uh, a doctor with a student. But they were very much more interested in my case. I guess later on, Dr. Larson, God bless her too. I said, so you mean I was an experiment? She says, yeah. She says, I couldn't tell you that at the time. We're just trying to save your life. But she says, the chemo I had to give you usually would have ruined your heart anyway in the end, which believe it or not, it really didn't except for a few leaky valves that I got. And that's not too bad. They, they said, she did say, because of me now, she has cured more than seven to 10 leukemia patients because she took a risk on me and I allowed her and signed the papers to use this chemo, which wow. at the time I didn't know. So by me doing this, she was able to save other heart patients who Usually the chemo would have wrecked their heart, but they figured yeah. out a way through me how to do it. So oh, that's awesome. That's like a, a miracle. Okay. These are the little miracles yeah. that I, that I don't even know I contribute to society and the ones that I do, I know. of. Um, so with that, my five months of seven months of chemo one week, you know, for a whole month, you know, it was bad. The first round was bad for 30, 30 days straight. I was in pain. I said, give me morphine or I can't stand up. As soon yeah. as I stood up, 
it was a cramping feeling like you can't go to the washroom. Excuse me. I know we're going to go worldwide, but <laughs> that's the way it was. I mean, someone right, who went right. to chemo knows the pain it can cause. I said, if you give me the morphine, I can start to function again. They did. I said, look at me go. I said, I got up out of that bed and I never went back to that bed. I got up. I got the computer out. I just stayed socially active on Facebook, which I don't really like anyway. But, you know, there comes that amends step, making right. amends to other people. Facebook brought me the opportunity to reconnect with people that I needed to make amends with. Now, mind you, some people on Facebook, they, they knew about my illness and, you know, whatever. Um, word got back to my my longtime high school sweetheart that I was sick. And her cousin living here, and I still knew him, he connected me with her on the phone. And I just couldn't believe we talked for hours in the hospital. Wow. Um, and we rehashed everything, how it all went down and how we both regretted what we could have done. What you know, you know, we could, you know, the things we could have done, like just say, hey, no, I'm not leaving, whatever. Yeah, yeah. we just didn't have the guts to do at the time. Whatever the case, you know, I came to find out that she had a family and, you know, and I was dating my wife of today at the time. So, you know, and and we told both our husbands and girlfriends, wives, whatever, we told them, who, you know, who we're talking to. I got nothing to hide. This is right. something I need to do. I need to make amends to this girl. And, and, and I did. And she was sorry for a lot of things that happened that she wished she could have done to keep us together so basically we we ended our romance properly without doubts of what should have been she has a family now grandkids uh we still talk to this day um and uh you know they played a very important role in my life these people i mentioned when um yeah when, when, when I look back, you know, she was with me when my father died and possibly only the support or comfort I had at the time, her family, because our family was so destroyed over it. Uh, I literally took her, they, her family literally took me as their own. And a lot of my other friends, families did the same. Uh, they sort of took me under their wing. A lot of the girls in the neighborhood that you know, we'd go to prom and dates and stuff on and hang out. Their fathers would come out and talk to me. You know, I think they kind of knew I needed that father image, but yeah. I didn't see it like that at the time or took it like that until now looking back. They 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 sort of knew the hurt I was having and it's like they didn't know how to help, um, really. Yeah. Uh, so that's why it was real important. Um, yeah, they treated me like family. Um, so um, an interesting one, I got a real good job after all of that cancer. No, before that, before the cancer and that, uh, one story I need to share, and it's about making amends that, um, you know, I, I did make all my amends um, to, you know, really everyone on my list. And I've even had people on Facebook 
like that were cheerleaders that never hung out with me. Uh, they, that's how I got hooked up in the first place with Facebook. Somebody, a cheerleader called me on the phone. I don't know how she found me and said, hey, you on Facebook? I said, no, well, we're having a 40th reunion, this, this and that. And then she says, look, hey, Mike, I want you to know something. Uh, that, you know, I'm sorry we didn't hang around or have these cliques in school where one group of kids would hang out with one. She says, I'm really sorry we didn't get to know, you know, you guys back, you know, in high school and include you in things. She actually made amends to me. Wow. And I wasn't expecting anything. It's like, yeah. wow. I, and I told her, I said, Sue, I, I thought you guys thought we were a bunch of just idiots partying our lives away, which I did. <laughs> but <laughs> I will say this. A lot of people you thought in high school were going to be the ones who made it. Some of those are the ones who didn't make it. Um, right. Uh, it's amazing who, you know, you thought were the smart ones and who were had their life together. And in actuality, it's quite opposite in reality, yeah. uh, which is sad to find out. You've got to be kidding me. He offed himself. That guy, he was like the smartest guy in school. Yeah, it does happen. And yeah. the days we live in today, I'd like to just stress to the younger generation, I, I didn't even have these kind of stresses to worry about, like uh, Ukrainian wars and uh, COVID pandemics. Uh, that alone is a very scary world. Try not to fear the world. We're just passing through. Um, alcohol is not going to stop these things from happening, and they're not going to go away if you drink for them or to escape them. Um, uh, in the end, it's just going to be like being nuked anyway. You're nuking yourself. Um, right. Try not to get into the world too much. It's passing away. Um, at least in my faith, that's what it says. Uh, we're just here temporarily. Think about what eternity will be. Uh, we should be focused more on that and uh, helping people. Um, being compassionate, um, uh, forgiving, forgive other people. Um, just, exactly. You know, all, all the way around, try to be kinder um, and just try to stay out of the craziness of this world because it's, it's only destruction. Um, and, and that's the world that I created for myself, my own prison and destruction. Um, I could have been many things. Uh, I was given many opportunities. Uh, uh, one thing, I, one last thing on amends, I'd like to say I, I did make amends. They all worked. They all sort of, they what they did is they freed me up from my past. I no longer have to drink about these things. They no longer bother me. Um, the only story I must share, which is a complete miracle in itself, which gave me my it's weird i moved in with my girlfriend before we got married because i had lost my house and i had nowhere to go i was working um as a cna and that was my last days doing that because coming up was something i never expected um this is like um 2000 i don't know what year it's 2010 or 11, I'm done with the cancer. I'm, I'm, I'm on the road to recovery. 
Um, and I said, hey, let's go see Ron back at, you know, blank, blank foods, you know, where I used to work. You know, I, I just want to, he's really been on my mind and I need, I, I need to straighten out with him or just let him know that I'm doing okay. And I just right. want to let him know that I still got his Bible and I've been actually reading it uh, and, you know, going to church and, you know, practicing the faith. Um, so we went there and I couldn't believe it. He was there. I said, Ron, remember me? It's Mike, the guy you fired. <laughs> uh, and and I, I, he goes, oh, my gosh. He goes, how you doing? We went up in his office. Uh, he's actually the owner, part owner of the company. It's a family wow. owned grocery store. So this guy is also corporate. He brings me up in his office and we're talking to him. And I says, Ron, I, I got to let you know, if, if you felt bad firing me, I just want to let you know how sorry I am that you gave me the chance to, to have a job and, and, and a good life. You gave, you gave me the opportunity one time. And then you gave me the opportunity when I was honest with you about having a problem. And, and you sent me to treatment. And the one thing I want to just tell you is that I feel like I really really disrespected you at that point after you sent me to treatment and I came back to work drunk but I said I told him I have to let you know Ron because you did that you saved my life because after that I almost died and that's when that happened where my mother had to bring me to the hospital uh, that was that incident there where I lost yeah. my job uh, and I went home and drank over it all and just about killed myself. Uh, I said, because of you, Ron, you saved my life. I just want you to know that. Uh, and I appreciate it. And I'm really sorry if I disappointed you because I was a good worker and this happened. And if you feel bad over firing me. And he just smiled. And he says, you come to our Bible study next Thursday. And you know what? We hung out ever since. <laughs> We were hanging out ever since, and he's he's been to my wedding, put it that way. Um, he's still in my life every Thursday morning. He's got a study group that I join in. Uh, That's great. Here's, here's the kicker. He says, you want your job back? Oh, he my gosh. He gave me my job back after 14 years of sobriety. He says, 14 wow. years is a good sentence. You've paid your price. He says, <laughs> we're looking for a meat cutter. So from that point on until uh, about three years ago, me and the wife, seven years ago, me and the wife finally got married, uh, something I never would have had had I been drinking. Um, I got stepkids. My kids are okay. My one son, thank God he's not crazy like, he's crazy like I was when he was young. I'm trying to settle him down. He lives in Wisconsin. But I'm just glad that he, told me outright we talk a lot and that's good we were yeah totally cool. definitely I'm definitely cool about that and that's really nice to have a relationship that you lost um even though I that one day I'll never forget him looking out the window with hugging his little blanket that's just a killer to me anyway yeah. it all turned out good in the end because of amends in the 12 steps um Ron gave me my job back and that's a miracle by itself. I was looking to get out of the hospital business because I told you I couldn't do it no more. Right. 
And, uh, you know, years have gone by free of cancer. First, it was every month of blood test, then three months, six, a year, every year. It's been like that for the last 11 years, nothing wrong. Just recently, nothing, completely Good. clear. Um, and then uh, I quit that job and he understood why we moved uh, down to this area and more towards the city. So it was just too far for me to drive. And I got a job down the block from me, literally could walk to work as a meat cutter, making more money. And the overtime was great and my, everything was going good, my heart and everything. And then boom, I had to meet you. <laughs> I had to meet you, Angel. It's like I thought I had everything squared away and things were gonna start getting better. Uh -oh. Well, it, tur it, it turns out folks, there's this one more twist to my story that actually ended my career, which actually looking back now, I think God has given me my last days to uh, enjoy the things I could never do and uh, accomplish because of time of work, 50, 60 hours a week, working every weekend, every holiday, never off. Uh, that's the retail business. Um, yeah. Now I've been given the opportunity to do things like this, uh, service work. Um, and I always wanted to, I play in a church band now. I'm starting that up. We're, I'm still playing my guitar. I play with my friends that are still here in the neighborhood. Um, but um, one morning I went to work last March um, and my heart started racing. I didn't know what was going on. I thought once again, it might've been a blockage because I'll be honest with you, I, up until this happened, I kind of really wasn't watching my diet because things were going good and my, yeah. my test would come back good. Even cholesterol was perfect. Um, but this time it turns out that due to all the heart stuff that went on in the past, my heart rate went to 200 beats a minute and went out of whack. It went out of sync like a car misfiring in the engine. And that's what they call sudden death. They don't understand how I survived it. I don't understand because I couldn't, it felt like somebody was choking me. I was getting no blood to my brain. They don't understand how I didn't pass out, but minutes and minutes have gone by and there's still no ambulance. They get there, they took my pulse. They said, let's go. There's no waiting, we're out. I get in the ambulance. I see one guy with paddles in his hands. The other guy's reading the strip from the cardio thing. He says, wide. I says, I know what wide means. I says, oh my God, I'm gonna die here. I said, I know it. I could feel my heart pounding. Uh, I said, shock me, do something. Um, uh, I guess they couldn't do it in the ambulance. They were given orders to uh, defibrillate me in the ambulance. They can't do that if you're still conscious and, and breathing. So if they did it, they risked me stopping my heart altogether. Yeah. So they, they got me there as quick as possible. I mean, I, 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 I just got off the gurney and I, I literally walked or ran into the ER said, let's go. You guys are too slow. I know what's going on. Uh, and um, I said, I can't breathe. I, you know, it's, it's getting worse to, to breathe. I said, um, they got me in there. 
ER doctor says, I know what's going on. I read it from the ambulance strip, um, put the pads on them. And would you believe there's a student there? Okay, look at this strip. What would you do? I go, you got to be kidding me. Now's not the time for training. Yeah. <laughs> this is a true story. She says, guys, wow. shock him to shut him up. She shocked me. My body went up in the air. I sat up. I said, what do you do? I want to go back to work. I feel good now. She goes, you ain't going nowhere. You just had ventricular tachycardia, which is sudden death. She says, you had four more minutes and that was about it. Wow. I says, I, I, I says you mean I'm not going home? Um, this is what they told my wife. The paramedics said four more minutes and that might have been it. She says, we got him there as quick as we could without, you know, intervening in any way. We had to just move. Um, so um, with that being said, um, they determined my arteries were all clear. So that's why I said, you know, I wasn't really watching eating because my arteries were still clear. They did the angiogram, no blockages causing this incident. Turns out scar damage from the very first heart attack I had at 30 years old was about the size of a dime on my heart, on the left side of the heart. That's the side that pumps blood out of your heart. When that fails, you're in heart failure because your body can no longer pump efficiently. Um, yeah, that's the side I had problems with. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, they installed a pacemaker defibrillator in me three days later. And uh, I told the doctor, I said, can you give me five years? I said, this is going to, you know, you know, I'm now disabled. And sure enough, I was quickly put on disability, which I, you know, totally, I, can, I can't work. I mean, I can't yeah. lift 10 pounds uh, because the thing is, I, I can't do anything that will keep my heart. I have to keep my heart from as much as I can from stress and racing and that whole industry is a stress enough. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. so between my union pension that fell due because of all of this and um, the income from disability, um, I, I'm in okay shape. The years of putting into a union pension, which my uncle was right all, all the time about, he says, you know, do this, this and that, and you'll be okay when you retire. It's just, I had to retire at 60 and, I wasn't quite prepared monetarily to do certain things I want to do. And I was really looking forward to 62 going, but I guess God, my God has a different plan for me because uh, he's changed my course completely. But you know what? I'm being provided for through benefits that I worked for. That's one thing an alcoholic will always protect to the end is his job or any addicted person to any drug because without money, you can't do it. That's one right. thing we will protect to the end is a job. That's why people say, oh, I keep my job and I drink all I want. That's because they make sure they keep it. And, and that's the last thing to usually go as a job or a marriage. Usually a marriage will go before the job. Yeah. Um, but um, my wife at the time was my girlfriend through the leukemia. We just had met the summer before. She mentioned the weight loss. We finally married in uh, seven years ago. Ron, the guy who fired me, he was at my wedding. Uh, he's now, I, he even says, he's like, 
he calls me his spiritual child. So oh. I've got several spiritual guides that um, uh, they watch out for me. Uh, I'm still in contact with my original sponsor from from years ago. He's got probably 25 years sober, 26, because he was five years ahead of me when we met. Wow. Uh, I just want to mention to let you know how real and deadly this disease is. Um, just because I made it through, and as you can see, barely made it through. Um, um, there, there's a side that people really don't see. And I saw a lot of it working in the hospital uh, for, you know, people um, in comas from heroin overdoses and their families just leaving them there to pass away slowly. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, uh, I'm just gonna give just a few examples of who I know. Uh, and this are just people that I know personally. And I don't know how many hundreds of others through the grapevine I've heard. Uh, that's sort of a pun, the AA grapevine. <laughs> that's a, a periodical newsletter they came out with a while back. Anyway, um, um, yeah, this one guy, John, in our home group, that home group I told you about, he didn't tell anybody he was getting pills off of line online. He didn't want to say after 20 years of sobriety or 12 years, I think he had, the pride in him kept him from admitting to us in our group that he had a problem and he relapsed. And, and a month after that, or before, after that, this is the reason we found out why he put himself up against the tree and he shot himself in the mouth with his 38. Um, oh my gosh. He committed suicide. I'll never forget the phone call from my sponsor. He, he was crying. He goes, John's gone. He says he shot himself. I said, what are you talking about? He shot himself. How could somebody with 12 years sobriety yeah. shoot themselves? I said, he, he, he was teaching us how to stay sober. Well, it came to be that he, he didn't want to, his pride would not let him admit that he relapsed. Uh, and he just couldn't do it no more. He just couldn't wow. do it. Uh, my cousin, Davey, uh, he was 15 year old, 1995. My cousin, Davey, first time he ever tried heroin at the age of 15. He OD'd, his friends left him there for dead. My cousin went oh my and got gosh. him after the police. So that was a very bad funeral. Um, yeah, 15 years old, first time ever trying heroin, dead. Um, so see, these things can hit home for a lot of people. There's a lot of people. Like my, my uncle Howard, a Korean vet, drank since Korea was over with. There's something about the military. If you're in battle or have seen combat, I, I, I know now when they're talking about post-traumatic and this and that, you don't understand what we saw. Yes, I do, because these are the people, my one friend, Mike, my neighbor next door, my my friend who I grew up with since we were in diapers, his father was in Vietnam. Same story, his father passed away when he was a young kid. He went off to Vietnam, never came back the same, drinking from, you know, beautiful family. I He used to take me to AA meetings when I was trying to get sober. Uh, wow. And then he wound up dying of it. And he was in an indirect way. He was just completely drunk, living on the street and someone beat him up. He wound up in the nursing home. 
and he passed away because of his injuries. Wow. Um, they were that bad, but he was, he was bad. Uh, many other countless people I hear of. Uh, um, my friend, Richie, I see when we moved back to the area, when we got married, my mother-in-law had passed away a few years after, God bless her. She actually had a little alcohol problem too. So did my wife's father. So, you know, they're familiar with everything. Um, yeah. And my wife grew up with alcoholism, so she knows. Um, um, so uh, my one friend, we, we, we bought the house because let's just say she inherited the house, okay? We took over the house of her mother where she grew up in. And now being, we're, we're now living back where I did all these things. We're living back in the, the same neighborhood. I, how I met my wife was one of my friends, girls that I know, uh, a, a girl I knew from high school, we stayed connected. And um, I got to talking with her and I says, you know, because of all this stuff going on in my life, I've been single for about five years now or whatever. I said, enough's enough. It's time for me to date maybe. Um, and uh, I says, you got any friends? She says, look through my friends list. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going through there, I'm going through there. And I, I said, she's cute, how about her? So I messaged her back and she goes, oh, let me talk to her, okay? Oh yeah, she remembers you from high school. See, we all went to the same high school. She, my wife oh, wow. at the time, my wife today that I have, we went to the same high school, but I was a senior and she was a freshman. We never hung out as a group like my other ones. Yeah. But yeah, we went out for one time and we hit it off and things, you know, escalated from there. And we sooner or later wound up married. And um, like I said, she could have booked on me when I had leukemia, but she, she stood by me. Um, we weren't married That's or great. anything. We were only dating six months, but you know, I, and I got in the habit of um, how to stay in contact, you know, I, I still, I'm trying to stay on the 12 steps here. Uh, well, I guess every day is, a, you know, having had a spiritual awakening, we tried to carry this message to others. Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to do here. If I can just yeah. prevent one person from, you know, every day when we make a choice, it really does matter for the future. Your choice today will do something in the future. So if I can just reach one person, especially the younger crowd, I know it's a rough world today. I know, I, I understand because looking back, it was rough for me too, but not in the way you have it rough. You've got it in so many ways rougher because of all the political divisions and all, everything going on in the world is completely different than when I grew up, that's for sure. Um, so I understand, but if I could just get through to one person to not literally, and I mean this literally, give away a life that could have been much better and productive and worthwhile than to drink one away or, you know, these illnesses and that they came about through drinking and drugs. And just because you're healthy now, it will catch up to you. Trust me, it's not going away. It will not go away. It's a disease. So if I can just, just emphasize that enough, I, I've made my point and I would be the happiest person in the world. 
if I just help one person out there, if I can do it with what I went through in my life, you can do it. Most definitely. Anything else? <laughs> I, I can go on and on with, with stories, but they're just stories that it's nothing you've never heard in a bar anyway. Yeah, well, we so. can't thank you enough, Mike, for coming on here and sharing all that you have. And, you know, no doubt you've touched not just one, but I'm sure you've touched many people because, you know, addictions are addictions, you know, regardless if it's alcohol or drugs or, you know, whatever. And the 12 steps, you know, like you pointed out, if you, if you go through it, it can save your life, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's so very important and all life is precious and it's important, especially like you said, for the young people to, to understand it. I don't think they have that kind of grasp on life, on how precious it is. You know, they just, you know, they get overwhelmed and they throw it away and you, know, right. you can't, once you do that, it's, it's done. I mean, it's a yeah, one and done thing, you know, there's been day after day that I've always said, no, tomorrow's another day. I'll stop tomorrow. And tomorrow would bring on even more troubles. So it right. just builds up and builds up. Uh, right. There's you, it's not going to go away. You can't ignore an addiction away. You can't ignore it away. Um, it will catch up to you and it will do damage like a tornado uh, or you will go through people's lives like a tornado. 85% uh, of the people in jail are there because uh, they were either under the influence of drugs or alcohol or have been in a blackout from drinking and don't remember. And, you know, sometimes I truly do believe some of these people on the stand when they say, I, I, I don't remember killing anybody. You know what? That's absolutely true. I don't know how many times I was in a car accident that I don't even remember. Uh, I could have killed. Thank God I was protected or I must have a guardian angel because I should be dead. Um, because some of the stories I haven't even told you. Um, I really should be dead um, several times over, but I'm here for a reason now, I believe. Most um, definitely. Um, and like I said, I'm getting more involved in the church. I actually feel like now I was kind of depressed to be a little bit retired early. Some people are probably thinking, what are you crazy? I'd love to retire early. <laughs> well, it's not that easy when you're a very active guy and now you have a heart right. condition that says you can't really too much of anything right. strenuous, you know? Um, but that's okay. There's other things to do. I could still play my guitar and be in a band. Um, and uh, yeah, well, you know, all I can say is the promises in, in the big book. I would like to just read these because this is what happened as an end result of a total summary of how my life and how this book and program works. Um, it says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. 
that our feelings of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude toward an apparent life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us that we could what we could not do for ourselves. That's in the big book, page 83 and 84. And those the promises... Big book, the big book that you're referring to, is it called the big book? If somebody wants to get a copy of that to start yes, on the path to... Yes, Anonymous. Okay. It, it's called the big book in AA. But okay. it's really, it's, you know... All you have to do is punch in AA and Google AA, and it will give you everything you need, even get you information to get you to a meeting in your area for that day. You can track. Gotcha. That's important. Thanks for sharing that because it's definitely important. We hopefully anybody listening that needs help can get the yes. help they need. And you see, by intuitively knowing you know what kind of mess I was in, Angel, mentally. You you know what I was going through when I called. When I made that call to you, I said, Angel. But see, I intuitively knew where to get help for a specific problem. Okay, yeah. I, I went searching out this heart group, and I couldn't I couldn't find one until this came along. And then there were you, and it's like, wow. Okay, I, I got to take a chance. I I'm so depressed and and out of it right now. I've got to talk to someone. It was like me picking up the phone and saying, look, I'm about to take a drink. I need help. Help me. That's what yeah. I did with you, but in a different way. So you see, by going through this, I intuitively know where I can find help. And if I can't find it, I can. I know how to get it. That's good. That's important. Very important. So this is why, you know, people sometimes they call you thinking that it's going to be a a fun phone call. Sometimes they're calling you for like, if you haven't heard from somebody in a long time, they may be calling you for something different than you're expecting. Uh, yeah. Maybe they're maybe they're crying out for help and not saying it uh, just by the way they talk. Um, yeah. You just never know. That's why it's very important to just be forgiving of people, be kind to people, have, have compassion and comfort or compassion for people because we don't know what they've gone through or what they're going through, you know, or what we may have to go through. So you can't judge anybody. No, exactly. Like you're saying too, put that pride aside, put that pride and ego aside. It'll kill you if you don't. Yes. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. So that's my story, and um, that's how me and Angel met. And you know, Angel, I just want to thank you. This was on my list of things to do in retirement was to start my own podcast, and you know, to help people in some way or another. But like I said, these little miracles happen when I suggested, "Why don't you do a story on Bill and Bob W. who started AA?" I thought that was a good the, the contributions you'll find in that episode i think you'll you'll this episode will all come together with that um, oh yeah 
definitely that that episode will be after this episode so thank yeah, you for, so, for bringing it up uh as you research them you'll find things very interesting what amazes me the most i have to just make mention of this uh and it's a fact i looked it up because i wanted to make sure about it i always wondered where the 12 steps came from how they came up with them I did find out uh, that uh, people in Oxford Church Group they attended. But ironically, as you'll see in the biography of Bill and Bob W., these were not religious men of any means. They were sort of agnostic atheists at the point to where they couldn't get God, a concept of God themselves until. Uh, one of their friends suggested it to him. One came up to him and said, you look strange, fella. What happened to you? I got religion, he said. Now, that's in the one of the big book stories, but that's just an example. The irony of it all is that these guys didn't know nothing about God, didn't want, never read the Bible or anything like that. Um, they, like I said, they basically were trying to get atheists that were, um, alcoholics to believe in something but ironically when you look at the 12 steps i looked it up these principles they set forth and wrote down on paper back in the 1930s being no men of god themselves other than a couple priests they knew they wrote down these 12 steps that worked for them and they're based on the book of James in the Bible and the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus and also found in 1 Corinthians 13, these principles that they wrote down. High ironic. They they wanted nothing to do with God, yet what they wrote down was completely out of the Bible. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's God-inspired or spiritually inspired, whatever you want to call it. Um, oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, they have helped countless millions of people since the 1930s. So um, it'll be interesting to see their full story when you do it. Um, yeah, most definitely. So, uh, well, I guess we'll close up then. Uh, as everybody always knows that listens to the show, I always like to close with a prayer or a song of the week. And I've asked Mike to share a prayer. Um, this week and he's going to close us out with a prayer okay yeah and i just thank you for all listening out there and i hope somebody got something out of it which i think you might have um but life can go on without alcohol remember that there is living to do uh don't stay in the darkness because that's what it was like for me um father we just thank you uh for today and uh God, as I know you, I pray today that you be with all who are listening to this podcast. I pray for those who are still suffering from any, any addictions, that through you they may come to the light and not live in the darkness of this world. I ask you for healing and comfort for all families of people with addictions that it is destroyed. And we ask that you mend the relationships of broken hearts and, and family members because of addictions. And we pray that you hear our, 
our prayers to heal all who are sick. We pray for the spirit of the Lord to place upon the heart of all who are suffering from addiction to search out help and find peace and serenity and a new way of life. In you, we have to thank, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Mike. Can't thank you enough. Uh, you're welcome, Angel. So I will pause here for now. I so hope and pray that you all enjoyed the show and that this show is everything that you've been looking for and even more and that it continues to be that and even more for as long as possible. I am always greatly open to suggestions, recommendations for people to showcase on the show. As I've said infinite times, um, you we have people from all over the world now listening to the show. And I know that each and every one of you have such amazing beings, past and present in your culture that we have no idea about, but we should know about. So please, please, please take a moment to contact me, reach out to me, share these people and their stories with me, or at least where I can find the information uh, to locate information on these people so we can have it on the shows. Also, I love to pray. I am always doing my level best to be in a continuous state of prayer and people that listen to the show love to pray as well and we would all love to pray for you if you would like for us to pray for you please there is on the website which i'm going to give you the information here in a minute information there's a form at the bottom of the website that you can fill out to submit your prayer request it asks for your first and last name. You don't have to give any of that. It does ask. The only thing you have to fill out is your email address. And that way I can write you back just to let you know I received your prayer request and that we'll be doing it. Um, there's a, an area there where you can write out what your prayer request is. If it's for you, it's for a loved one, for a friend. If anyone that prays knows that the more information you have about the person you're praying for, the better. So feel free to share as much information as you're comfortable sharing and also please note on there if you want me to just pray for that person or for you on my own or if it's okay for me to share that on the show so we can get as many people as possible praying so please make sure you note that on there so there's two ways that you can contact me the first is through our website and that also has the prayer request form on there and you can find our website if you don't already know it at faith and more podcast that's all one word faith and more podcast dot wix site w i x s i t dot com slash my dash site s i t e again that's faith and more podcast dot wixsite dot com slash my dash site or you can email me directly at faith and more podcast again all one word faith and more podcast at gmail.com thank you all so much for listening i so hope you all return next week please if you enjoyed the show make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and if you really enjoyed the show, please share it with as many people as you possibly can. Because right now, that's the only way our show gets out is by word of mouth and by sharing. So the more people you talk to it about and share with, 
the more people we can have listening and the more people we can bless with these stories of these amazing beings. So again, thank you all so very much for listening. Please know that you all are in my heart and my prayers. I love each and every one of you so much. Always remember, love yourself and love others. And I will see you all again next week.